honestly can't believe we are Olympic champion. It's like dream come true. Especially after what happened in qualifying that first ride. I just did it just to get the restart because my, my first start wasn't, wasn't the greatest. Hey podcast listener, you're listening to the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast. The weekly podcast where we discuss all the issues that cyclists talk about. Whether you're out training, commuting or just riding around, sit down and listen in because we're about to begin. I got something to say, man. Yo, welcome to episode 23 of the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, where we believe that only a semi-pro cyclist knows that dishing has nothing to do with eating. If you stick around to the end, I'll fill you in on the quote from the top of the show and let you know who is Mr. Anti-Sportsman. Review, Alaskan cyclist Eli, great show, I'm new to the road cycling world, and your show has got tons of great info, I'm on a totally different side of the Pacific, but love your take on Cycling Down Under, keep up the great work, subscribe people. Thanks for getting in touch Eli, thanks for dropping the review, it really does mean a lot to me. I think that technology is so awesome. Eli is rocking it out in Alaska and he's able to get in contact with some chump from Australia, me, on the other side of the world. It's killer. I'm a big fan. And Eli, you do know that I'm not in Australia, right? Anyway, we'll get to that later or at some other point. But one goal of this show is to bring people together from all over the world, especially those that are isolated by location or by their non-lycra-wearing friends. And if you like the show, please take some time out to give us a review on iTunes and also get in touch via Twitter. I'm on there nearly every single day. I'd love to hear anything from you. Eli got in contact with me via Twitter as well. And I made an offer to him, and I will make it to anyone. If anyone wants any random help regarding cycling, I'll try my hardest and I'll see what I can do for you. Right now, though, I do have a question for you. It's a bit of an issue that I want a little bit of help with. It's a really, really big first world problem, but I'm about to buy a new pair of road shoes, and I don't know what color to get. Should I go for white or should I go for black? I'm not going to go for any other color. I think they start looking a bit funny, especially if they're in fashion. They really age quickly. But I've got this dilemma. My sock color, my chosen sock color is black. I'm a big fan of black socks for vanity reasons and also for cleaning reasons. I don't need to separate them or put any other stuff in with the wash. But I really am unsure about white shoes and black socks. If anyone can help me with this, I'd be so grateful. I've been tossing this up in my head over the last few weeks, and I really can't come to a conclusion. So if you can just leave me a comment on the episode page, or like I said, find me on Twitter, Semi-Pro Cycling. Any help is going to be appreciated. I'll let you know what I come up with when I do get them, but I won't be getting them probably for another three or four weeks. So I've got a little bit of time to work this out. And now, the news. Well, no news is good news, so let's get straight to the nuts and bolts. This is a scientific idea that originated with uh, weightlifter training uh, in the 1950s. Uh, A fellow that really sort of brought it to the forefront was a doctor named Tudor Bampa, uh, and it's been translated over into many uh, sort of sports, many different endurance sports now. That's Marty Gale of OCB Multisport Coaching talking about the training concept called periodization. When you talk about periodization, what you're really talking about is breaking a season into cycles or periods. 
your your big cycle, your macro cycle is the entire t- entire year. Might be nine months, might be six months, it might be two years. Really depends on the athlete. Uh, and your micro cycles or, or mesocycles or mini periods lasting two to six weeks, uh, where you're focusing on different aspects of training. Today we are going to talk about planning your race year. My macro cycle is six months for reasons that I will go into later. These training periods set the framework for your training. For endurance sports purposes, uh, a fellow named Joe Friel really brought this out, uh, and he's broken it into, I believe there are four main phases in, uh, in that sort of training. You'll have your preparatory phase, where you essentially are training to train. You'll have your base training phase, where you're working on your endurance limiters, uh, aerobic development. You'll have your um, build phases where you start to work a lot more on anaerobic effort. And then you'll have your peak and taper phase. And that's where you uh, maintain your speed, um, back off a lot on your volume of training, and rest up for your key race. Marty mentions that the person that brought this idea to the masses is Joe Friel. And what follows is a breakdown of the six steps to planning your annual training program, which can be found in Friel's book, The Cyclist Training Bible. I will be using myself as an example and you'll be able to clearly see where my planning is going and what I'm aiming for come 2013. So if we move straight away to step number one, which is to determine my season goals. Sorry, determine season goals, your season goals as well. I think the best way of doing this is looking at it under the SMART principle, which is making a goal specific, measurable, attainable, realistic, and timely. So specific, it has to be racing outcome orientated. That's kind of the whole point of training in my mind and the whole point of putting together a plan. It's not just to finish a race, it's to have a result from a race. Second one, measurable, what gets measured gets managed. And you also would want to put something in so that you can know if you're moving towards that goal. So it motivates you when you're down and you know whether it's actually going to be attainable by the time limit that you've set. Third one, attainable. If you do everything right this season, what can you accomplish? Now, that's linked to the next one, which is realistic, which is, is this really possible? So linking the two, if everything goes right for you and considering your physical and mental capacity, can you actually achieve this goal? That's a pretty interesting question because a lot of people can set out with the flimsy goals that aren't measurable and then probably get disappointed that they don't get there. It sounds a little silly, but it's so hard setting goals. I sat down and I was trying to figure out what goals to set under this framework And it's tricky. You can aim for, okay, a win at a national championships. But as soon as you start getting into the league of the semi-pro and someone like myself, I'm not going to be doing a lot of competitive racing. So it's a little harder and I'm going to have to use measurements to know that I'm moving along towards the goal that I've set. I haven't actually gone that deep when I've set my goal. The final one though for setting under a smart system is timely and that's setting a time frame. So mine is set by July 7, which is the date of LADAP, that's going to make it quite easy for me. And so the goal that I set is top 5% in the field at LADAP. There's 10,000 capped entrants. They will probably get that, I think. So that's top 500. Uh, I, I think that's achievable for me. I think physically I can do it. And with the time I can put in, 
I believe I'll be stretching myself as far as I haven't really ridden a lot over the last six months, but I do think it's possible. It's a little tricky because it's kind of based on other people, which in some ways is not a good goal, but it's the best way for me to do it. I'm not going for the win. I'm not going for top 10. I borrowed this idea of the top 5% in something from Tim Ferriss. He just released a book called The 4-Hour Chef. It's interesting in the sense it's not just about cooking and eating. It's also about breaking down any objective that you can come up with and then figuring out how to achieve the top 5% as a goal at the end of breaking the process down and working towards that goal itself. I'm doing a similar thing when I'm choosing the top 5% as my end result. So number two is establishing supporting objectives. Now, if you haven't read this book, then it's not going to make much sense to you. And this idea, I must admit, when it was first presented to me, was a little against what I really believe in, which is doubling down. But I can see Friel's point when he talks about actually working on weaknesses at certain stages during your training when you're working towards a goal, whatever the race is. If I can dive a little bit further into this, what we're talking about here is working on those things that limit your ability to make big gains. So the way he puts it, depending on the actual race that you're doing, the type of race, the length, the type of terrain, um, whether there's other people in it, etc. There may be elements of that race that you aren't good at. What he's trying to get here, move your thinking forward so that you put some time into your weaknesses. So the example is kind of like if you're good at hill climbing and all you're going to want to do is just work on hill climbing. Now, there isn't anything wrong with that because doubling down at a certain point is going to mean that that's going to be your strength. But if you're no good on the flat and you lose contact with the group, then that's when you're going to have trouble because you're not actually going to make a performance gain during that year because you're just going to be crap at it the next year. I may be sounding a little convoluted in the way that I'm explaining this. Let me try and think of a simpler way. It's basically you have your strengths and you have your weaknesses. If you do not work on your weaknesses, you may not even be able to use your strengths. That's kind of what it comes down to. So establishing supporting objectives means choosing those weaknesses to work on. And only, he says you can choose about five, but I would say only choosing one or two because you don't want to spend too much time on them because really when it comes down to it, if you can improve them slightly and it means that you don't get dropped, then you just double down on your strengths and that's where you get your gains in the actual race itself. So examples of what objectives to set based on your specific limiters or weaknesses, we can look at, for example, endurance, the ability to keep going for a very long time, improved by doing long workouts, especially in zone two. So if you feel you don't have the endurance, which is actually what I think one of my weaknesses is, then you can have an objective example that goes like, within a six-week period, complete six four-hour rides in zone two with the last on July 8th. So it basically is just making me accountable to my endurance weakness. It's what I want to work on outside of my strengths that will improve my overall performance and may even link together my strong points of certain types of races so that overall I perform better. 
There are certain times that you will be doing this. It's not all season long that you'll be training these things. So you can pick and choose depending on your weaknesses, which he has a whole bunch of ways to test out what your weaknesses are. So it's not just what you subjectively feel your weaknesses are. He has ways to test it, whether it's actual physical or he's got a whole stack of tick the box kind of surveys that you can go through and figure out. For example, well, here's mine. So number one, I want to improve my focus. So I found that I had a low score in focus. During intervals, I want to concentrate on the set output. I find it difficult to do this mainly when I am on the trainer, but I do know that I get the most gain from it. So I want to put time into actually focusing heavily on my intervals more than I usually would and pushing past the point where I would just mentally drift away and then my performance would suffer. Secondly, improving endurance. Like I said, I don't believe I've got a big base and I don't believe that I can pull off a 130k ride tomorrow without really hurting. So what I want to do over the next six months, I want to complete all my long endurance rides and I want to gather them up and have a look at what I've done at June 1. So that's the time frame that I've set. And then I've got a month to kind of taper into the event itself. Number three, setting annual hours. What factors go into the time you have to train? I am a semi-pro, I'm not a pro, so I have other things I have to do, work-related, family-related, social life. There's other things that I put into priority depending on what time of year it is and and where I am mentally with my preparation, etc. These things come into it and you have to factor this in when you're planning the entire year because basically you're building up over time with set hours and those hours only fluctuate maybe, you know, 30% at max. And so if one week you train five hours and that's all you can do and the next you're training 15, you're not going to do it. That consistency that I talked about in the Momentum episode is something here that really needs to be built into the program from the very, very start. So just having a wide look at what the next year will intake, where your races are, we'll get into the actual races that you'll be choosing soon, but where the races are and what commitments outside of cycling that you may have around that. Of course, things are going to pop up when you can't plan for them, but we're not going to plan for the unplannable because it's a waste of time. I remember meeting my coach and talking every month about the month ahead, And I would sit down and I would go through races, social commitments, work commitments, and then together we would work out the best plan that would fit in all of that. So this is on the macro level and trying to figure out what major periods need to be adjusted. And then monthly, you can kind of tweak that a bit by bit, but not 5, 10, 15 hours difference between weeks. So my weekly hours on average have come out to 550 hours to train for the next year, including everything, gym, cross-training, and riding. I basically got this by doing a rough estimate of what an average training week has been for me over my cycling career, and then timesing that by 50, and that got to around 550 hours. It's, it's an interesting breakdown in a table which splits out pros riding about 1,200 hours to juniors riding about 300 hours a season. Now, number four is prioritizing races. It's easy for me because there is only one race that I'm going for, Latap, on July 7, 2013. That's the date that I've put down, so I've got six months to work towards it, and that's why my cycle is six months. I haven't looked beyond there because, honestly, I don't think I'll be able to get to any other bike races 
after that time. So it makes it quite easy. I'll have to reassess my goals again after it's done and then see what I want to do with hopefully the form I have. But the idea is A, B and C races. If you've been racing for a while, if you've done plans yourself, you've got a coach, you'll be aware of the A, B and C system. Essentially, A are the ones that you're really focusing on and you'll be in physical and mental shape for. B and C, these are warm-up races physically and mentally. They're less stressful in approach means that you will just be using them for training and you're not expecting actual results from them. And number five, divide year into periods. It's not actually that difficult. I find the difficult stuff is plugging in the workouts once you have the periods. But essentially, all you want to do is figure out when you want to start training, figure out what is going to be the last A race. And basically, I just work backwards from the last A race. I know that I don't have much time as far as six months isn't a hell of a lot of time, especially when it comes to preparing my base. But I'm going to utilize every single period that's in this system and work towards that. So uh, if I give you an example, July 7 is race day. That week, I have one week of race prep. And then two weeks before that, I'll be working on my peak. And then it goes backwards, build two, build one, base three, base two, base one. They're all four weeks, so three weeks on, one week off. And off is not totally off, it's just reducing hours slightly. And prep is preparing for training, and that's three weeks. So that's a slight compromise because I'll be getting into the gym and I haven't touched the gym in a while, so that may hurt. So I've got to take it easy when it comes to that so I don't get doms and I get totally domsinated. Another horrible joke, but if you know what doms is, you know it sucks. And number six, the final one, is assigning weekly hours. So we're moving right in now. Now, the weekly hours are actually made quite easy uh, when it comes to Joe Friel's method because he's got listed down based on your yearly training hours, how many hours you would allocate to each day of training. And the weekly hours themselves move in an ever-building wave where every three or four weeks, like I mentioned, is an off week. So for me, I will max out at about 14 and a half, 15 hours, and I'll drop down in my off weeks to about eight hours. But I'll be building up to that 14 or 15 hours slowly over time so that I'm not smashing myself and I give myself the best chance to recover without putting in huge spikes and not being able to keep up with it. So that's the framework. The tricky thing really is plugging in the bits after this point. Because everything else is kind of set, the race days are set, you work backwards from the race day and those periods sort of fall into place, the hours themselves, the tricky bit is working out what limiters to work on, when to work on them, what type of workouts to do. My goal here was really to demonstrate the idea that training plans are very, very individual and a lot of effort goes into the framework, you know, let alone the workouts themselves, which they are going to be next week because they really are a whole other episode on their own. But a couple of things that occurred to me while I was doing this whole process, that is, it really gives you a good idea of the commitment necessary to get where you want to go and what you have to put in based on the hours that you allocate. Number two, it's a real pain in the ass. I am not exaggerating here, but using a book, going back and forth with a spreadsheet and figuring out, 
you know, like how many hours per week you're allocating and then the changes and then the build and the drop and then slotting each workouts and then choosing workouts. It's a massive pain in the ass and it took me a long, long time, more time than it really should have, but I was trying to follow it to the letter to ensure that I had this as a framework and then I could make my tweaks, which I think I'm going to move that in once I separate myself from it for a couple of days and come back to it. Hopefully, I'll be re-energized and then be able to plug in workouts based on my experience and ones that I've done in the past, including a little look at strength, but strength itself has its own build-up and then maintenance phase that we can talk about at a later date. I will link to my live training program in Google Doc format so you can see the changes that I'll be doing over time, especially at the end of the month to see what I feel I need to change depending on how training went that month workouts that I've missed or intensities that I just cannot keep up with. And then we'll take it from there. We'll see what happens. But that's that. If you want any help with figuring out this stuff, I do recommend this book. I think it gives a good base. There are things that I don't agree with, but I will be trialing some of them. I'll be using a lot of my own experience when it comes to figuring out whether I am overtraining or whether I need to adjust certain parts of the program to really hone in to my specific event. It's an ongoing journey that we'll be definitely sharing together. And if there are any parts of this that you'd like to explain further, just get in contact and I can uh, whip it into the next show. But now let's get to the tech hacks and products section and a couple of apps this week. They do the same thing, but It's always good to have choice, especially because one is a little sexier on the user interface, but you're paying for that privilege. But what I'm talking about here is one app called Bike Saver and the other one called Rack Reminder. It gives you a massive hint to what it is, but we have always had those problems. I don't know if in your car you've got a sticker next to your speedo that says bikes on roof, but this is taking technology to the next step. You're able to set your location and then get a reminder in the example of rack reminder 300 meters out from your garage. Now, I think this is a lifesaver because I haven't personally done it, but I've been pretty close sometimes and I'm sure everyone has got a story of someone failing when it comes to ripping into their garage with their bikes on the roof. So if you have roof racks, this might be a small investment. I'll link them up in the show notes so you can check them out. The quote from the top of the show, it's Great Britain's track rider, Philip Hines, He does have a German accent because he was German, but he's a British national now. He's on the Sports Illustrated Anti-Sportsman of the Year list for his actions during London 2012. I know you would have caught it if you had any interest in the track cycling. I have tracked down the interviews that he has given, one with the truth and one with the, uh, I'm calling it bullshit, the one with the truth. You should check out the YouTube clip as well and watch Sir Chris Hoy's face. When he starts talking about this, it's a dead giveaway that he was telling the truth in the first one. But I have put the audio of the second interview at the end of this episode so you can check it out and let me know what you think. But definitely anti-sportsman of the year because he was in the rules and UCI hasn't busted him. But I'm just not a fan of it. But anyway, that's it. So till next week, get on your bike and enjoy the pain cave or the hurt box, whichever one you're into. For German-born Team GB track cyclist Philipp Heinz, an Olympic gold medal is a dream he never thought he could achieve. Yeah, it feels amazing. Still can't believe that I won a gold medal. 
need to realise that first need to sleep a night over it and then... The victory wasn't without controversy, however. Heinz crashed his bike in qualifying, forcing a restart. He later appeared to admit it was a deliberate tactic, something team officials dismissed as a comment lost in translation from a man who had only recently learned English. And the governing body said the result was not in question. Philip qualified that it wasn't deliberate. I just came out the gate and my back wheel slipped and then my front wheel skipped up the track as well and then I just lost the control of my, of my bike and then it's so hard to get to handle the bike and then I just crashed. It happened so quick and then I just fell down to the track and then I thought, oh no. But yeah, and then, but um, yeah, I recovered quite quick. Yeah, I just thought, oh my God, is this happened? Is this actually happening? At the Olympic Games, and then I thought, oh, come on, get focused again, do a good start, and then. Lying motherfucker. Mm. Mm.